Let's go ahead and uh, let's open up our Bibles to Genesis. If you haven't been coming for a while, we are uh, marching through Genesis, and it is quite the, uh, quite the odyssey. Um, we'll be in chapter 22. One thing, you know, when you, when you share teaching and you go verse by verse and passage by passage, you don't get to skip anything, so, uh, and, and we don't. And so we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot in the, the details. And today, we have a, a very family-friendly passage, so it'll be great. Um, <laughs> The sons aren't going to like this one. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's pray before we get started. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for each and every person here, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for uh, your kindness, your graciousness to condescend, to spend time with us, to help us as we go through this, this uh, human experience that you've, that you've given us and that it's all similar in so many ways and, but different for every one of us, and you know each one of us intimately. And we want to know you a little bit more, and there's so much to know, Father. But we, uh, we ask for your, your mercy, we ask for your presence, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can be here together this morning. Amen. And welcome to those of you who are online, and those of you in the, in the future who will watch this later. All right. So, trying to decide if I'm going to read this whole passage at the beginning like I usually do. Let's, uh, let's do that. This is an important, pivotal passage. So Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Jesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jedlaf, Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Makkah. Okay. So this passage is the definitive passage of what's called type. If you go to, uh, you don't have to turn there, but there's a, a verse that I was thinking of this week in Hosea, it's chapter 12, verse 10. And one of the things that God says in that verse is he says, I will use uh, words and visions and metaphors to teach you. And so he, he tells us that he uses similes and metaphors, so the word that is often translated there is similitudes to teach you. And this is one of them. And one form of similitude is what's called a type. And a type is when you have somebody in Scripture or something in Scripture representing something in the future. And there, there's always a trap with a type because you can, you can take it too far by trying to read so much into it but it's also the trap of not taking it far enough and not realizing the, uh, the, the potency of what God's doing. And the, the tricky thing about Genesis is there's, it's full of types. It's full of future foreshadowings, that show, you know, uh, indicating things that will happen in the future. And it does reveal a lot in the Scripture, and it helps us understand these passages when we recognize what it's pointing to and why. Because this passage is a... This is a, a, a very upsetting, difficult passage because we know God doesn't condone child sacrifice. He hates it. He actually says he hates it. But he tells Abraham, go sacrifice your son. And it says it's a test. It's actually the first place that word test is used in the Bible. So there's a lot of things about this passage, but before we go to this passage, I want to do a very quick overview of what's been going on and what's going to happen, just to help you get a sense of appreciation for the depth of the typology and foreshadowing that's happening here, because it's really easy to overlook. So I'm just going to go back, flip back to the beginning of uh, when, we, when Abraham first shows up on the scene, which is right around chapter 12. And I'm just going to give a really quick summary of some key things that keep getting repeated, happening again and again, key themes that keep showing up and will continue to show up because you kind of have to put all of this together to understand why this passage is where it is, why these things are in the order that they are in, and why the stories are told the way they're told, why some things are skipped and other things are, are given in such detail. It can feel random sometimes. You can read, uh, you know, and, and sometimes when you know you have a passage to teach, you look at it and you're like, why is this even in the Bible? I don't understand the point. 
But usually, when we start asking questions of ourselves or questions of the text, like what does this show about God? What does this show about the character of God? Why is this where it is? What happened before? What happened after? What does this show us about ourselves and our relationship with God? It all starts to come to life. And then you're faced with, now I have too much to say and I'll get through as much of it as I can. That's, <laughs> you guys know I don't do a great job at that. Okay, so Abraham is called in chapter 12. God says, you, after he divides the nations and assigns them, then he calls one guy and he says, I'm going to make a nation for myself that's going to be my people. And he calls this guy named Abraham. And he calls him out of a pagan land. And the first thing that happens after he tells him to leave his land is there's a lack of water. And they go, he and his wife go to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, then this strange thing happens where Abraham is afraid of what they're going to think of his wife. So he lies about his wife being his wife, and his wife is taken by another man, and only at the last minute is spared. And there's a lot of things about that that's so bizarre, because we go, well, what was his plan? Like, he either dies or loses his wife. That was his plan. There was no, like, in-between thing there. And so it, it seems so foolish. But keep that in mind, that there's water and then confusion over a bride. Then, Abraham is separated further from his family. He and Lot are divided. And Lot goes to the well-watered areas, and Abraham goes to the dry areas. Then Abraham rescues Lot, has the situation with uh, Melchizedek. God has a covenant with Abraham. We talked a lot about that. And then this thing happens again, where there's bridal confusion. Bridal confusion being, this time, now... Uh, Abraham is taking an Egyptian woman as an alternative to his wife. That's the story of Sarai and Hagar. And it's specific that Hagar is an Egyptian. So first you have Sarai being almost taken by an Egyptian husband and then restored to Abraham. Then you have Abraham confused taking an Egyptian wife. And the first thing that happens after that is Sarah, or Hagar is driven out to the desert, separated, rejected, and almost dies for lack of water and there's a well there, and God protects and preserves that line, but he rejects the line at the same time. So you keep seeing God saying, not you, I've heard you, I'll take care of you, I'll even bless you, but you're not the one. He keeps saying that. So then you have the, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, then Isaac's birth is promised It's guaranteed to Abraham by God himself that he's going to have a son with Sarai and that that son will result in a lot of offspring, a lineage. And Abraham uh, obviously pays close attention to that. Then you have the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. Then you have Lot and his daughters and more confusion over lineage and offspring. Then God rescues Lot, even though he's divided Lot out and separated him out, he still rescues him. Then you have this thing with Abraham and Abimelech in chapter 20. Same thing happens. By same thing, I mean, Abraham goes to meet this other powerful king, lies about his bride. Sarai is again taken by Abimelech as a bride, and his entire family line winds up cursed until he restores the bride back to Abraham. And the next time we see Abimelech, he and Abraham are fighting over a well. Again, 
It's always water and wives. That's the repeating theme in here, water and wives. I'll prove it. You think it's a joke. It's not. It's, it's everywhere in this book. And I'm trying to figure it out, too. I'm like, what is the deal? It's water and wives over and over and over. So you get Abraham and Abimelech. Same thing happens, a total, pretty much point-for-point point repetition of what happened with Pharaoh. And you're like, why is Abram doing this? It doesn't make any sense. So then Isaac is born. God, again, protects Hagar and Ishmael. And what happens in that story? She runs out of water in the desert. And God takes care of her anyway. Then we have today's passage, the sacrifice of Isaac, but I'm going to skip it. We're going to go forward. The bride, the chosen bride, dies in the next passage. Sarai, she lives to 127 years and then dies. What's the next thing that happens after that? A servant goes and chooses a bride for Isaac. And where does he meet her? At the well, where there's lots of water. And she says, I'm going to water you, and I'm going to water everything with you. Yeah, <laughs> apparently you've got to have them both. The, uh, now, the next thing, if you skip forward a couple chapters, Isaac meets Abimelech. And what does he do? He lies about his wife being his wife, and Abimelech takes her. And then it's confusion. Abimelech must really, he must, I mean, there must, had to be rumors about Abraham. First he has a situation with Abraham, then the exact same thing happens with Isaac and Rebekah. That's in chapter 26. And then what happens? Well, then Abimelech and Isaac argue about a well. And then it goes on. He has Jacob. Jacob goes and meets his wife at a well. Then Jesus, in John chapter 4, is at the same well, and a woman who has five husbands comes to him. And he says, I'm the water. And it kind of comes full circle there, doesn't it? And Jesus says things like, in uh, John chapter 7, he says, if you believe in me, I'll become a spring of living water in you that will overflow from within you. Water and wives and water and wives. This situation with the passage today I'm going to point out, you know, I'm giving the, the fun parts at the beginning. Isaac is sacrificed or offered by Abraham. God spares him in a substitution. And then Isaac doesn't show up again in the text until he comes to meet his bride. You see the typology and how, like, how profound it starts to get? Isaac literally is not mentioned again until the moment he walks out to meet his bride that the servant has gone to prepare for him and brought to him. So if that's not starting to ring so, like some gospel bells in your mind that this is the story of Scripture, this is what God's doing in Scripture, then um, you got to read the whole Bible because the whole thing is pointing to there's a promised offspring. There's a lineage. You're the bride. He's the living water. And those things really matter. And that's going to be repeated over and over and over. Okay, let's get into the specific text in chapter 22 here. So God tests Abraham, says specifically, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That's the first time the word love is in the Bible, by the way. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, remember, he has another son. But God says, no, not that son. That's not the son. This is the son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there 
as an offering on one of the mountains that I'll show you when you get there. Now, the neat thing here is Abram, remember what we learned about him when uh, we talked about the, um, the Sodom and Gomorrah passage when he meets God? Abram really likes serving God. He has joy in the service. So he, he bounces out of bed the next morning, and I'm sure he's extremely conflicted, but it says literally the next morning he gets up, he goes personally himself to cut the wood. I mean, Abraham has a, an entire household. He's an old man at this point. He's about 100. And, he, uh, and he's splitting the wood himself to personally, specifically do what God asked him to and obey God. He, has, he, he takes it, takes such a, a personal responsibility to carry out immediately and specifically what God asked him to do. So then Abraham takes a couple of his servants, gets on his donkey, and they start out. And it's a three-day journey. That's another important type. There's a lot of important things that happen in three days in the Bible. On that third day, Abraham lifts up his eyes. That's a, that's a fun phrase. Whenever it says he lifted up his eyes, it means something, he's about to see something very important. And he sees the place from far. And he tells the men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there to worship. And then what does he say? And we'll come back to you. Well, is he just, like, lying? Like, what? He, his plan is to slaughter Isaac while they're up on the mountain. But he also says, we're going to come back to you. Abraham takes the wood of the offering, lays it on Isaac. So you've got Isaac, the one and only beloved son, carrying the wood of his sacrifice up a mountain. This should sound familiar. And it's really familiar because this mountain, this, ma this range of Moriah is the mountain range in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is uh, at this point still a, a Jebusite city. And so it's not, a, it's not an Israelite city. It's not until uh, David is the one who actually captures it and, and then it becomes the city of David. But that doesn't happen for a long time. So they're outside the city of Jerusalem taking the wood of the sacrifice of the one and only promised son going up this mountain. It's the same mountain that Jesus dies on later. There's a, it, and, and we don't know the exact peak because there's a couple of them there. The uh, Jewish um, heritage has a tradition that this happened on the spot where the temple is. But that's not right because the temple spot is inside the city and Abraham wouldn't have gone inside the city. He was outside the city. So it's probably uh, the next one over north of the city, which is a very specific area of we know Jesus was crucified somewhere right over there. So you've got Isaac, the one and only promised son, carrying the wood on his back up the hill where he's going to be sacrificed. Now, how, what's, what's going on with Abram? How is he able to, to do this? Well, it's explained to us, if we go to um, Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews tells us, exactly what Abraham was thinking. And it's so simple, but so specific in another way. If you look at Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It says in 19, he considered 
that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what's Abraham's reasoning here? He says, well, God told me I was going to have this son. He told me I'm going to have offspring from this son. He's telling me I need to sacrifice this son, but I believe what he said, so he's going to have to raise this son from the dead. So Abraham believes in the resurrection. Now, let's put a little context here. The concept of sacrifice, we think of it as, we, we don't tie it tightly enough to the idea of worship. Worship in Scripture is sacrifice. And what to us, like that, that, it doesn't really compute. We think of worship as like an acknowledgement. Well, in Scripture, you, worship and sacrifice go hand in hand. This is how you worship. You worship through the act of sacrifice. Remember, what does Abraham say to his men when, they're, when he sees the place from afar off? He says, I and the boy will go and worship and then come back to you. It's a, it's the, the sacrifice is the worshiping of God. And this is how gods, the plural gods, were worshipped. Remember, these are, this is a, a time where there's a, a, just a, a, a litany of gods. They're surrounding gods all around this, I, this, uh, this territory, and different nations worshipped different gods, and they had different kinds of sacrifice, and even child sacrifice was somewhat common at the time. Because people were always trying to please these deities that they felt like they, they had to acknowledge. There's something really ingrained in human nature that we are born with a sense of debt. You can't shake it off. It goes back as far back as we can find in human history. We are born with a sense that we have something we have to please and repay. The concept of debt is not a modern concept. And it's a, and whether financial debt or otherwise, and, and there's some really neat uh, books and studies on this, and me being in the finance field, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting philosophy of human nature that we're born indebtedness, in, in debt, and we're in debt to something bigger than us. It's just wired in. Every culture has it. And what they do is they try and identify what that might be and then they try and please it through worshipful sacrifice. And these gods, these false gods, demand it. They demand more and more. And so Abraham knew this. He would have seen this. And there's a sense where if you step out of your Western evangelical mindset and step into the ancient Near East, there's a sense where it's not out of the question that the God that you serve would ask something like this. Isn't that strange? Because he knows God. He's literally met God. He has seen what God can do. He's seen miracles in his own life. He's also seen tremendous destruction. He's, he saw what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, and God discussed it with him beforehand, in person, what he was going to do. And they talked about the terms of the destruction and what was going to happen. So then when that same God says, you're going to have a son, I'm going to provide offspring for this son, then Abraham just, okay. Then he says, also I need you to take that son, you're going to go to this place and you're going to offer him as a sacrifice there. And 
Abraham says, okay. Why? Well, it's very simple. He believes God. And that's the most important thing to him. Because he knows that he owes everything to this God. This God that he personally calls Yahweh. This, this Jehovah. This God that people around him see and talk about and acknowledge, and they know it's his God. And sometimes they serve other gods, but they still know who this God is. And Abraham believes him. He believes what he says. And so when God tells him to do something, he just does it. Because he knows that there's, there's really no, like, you can't exist not doing what God says. And he knows that if you cross this God, and if you abuse this God, like Sodom and Gomorrah did, they got wiped off the face of the earth, supernaturally. We had a couple of sermons on that. So you have to get into that mindset. You also have to recognize that sacrifice and ritual sacrifice was, was a, a known quantity at the time. Now, we don't have the, uh, the Mosaic law yet. Moses hasn't shown up on the scene. When he does, you know where he meets his wife, by the way? At a well. <laughs> That's Exodus chapter 2. And he actually, he saves the day. It's a cool, like everybody would want this. He meets his wife by fighting off bad guys at a well and drawing the water for her, and then she marries him. So it's a good story. Um, so, there, so the Mosaic law hasn't happened yet, but there's still a standard of ritual sacrifice to the extent that Isaac, who knows they're going to worship, knows what's necessary for the sacrifice. He's going... Okay, I see everything but the, but the lamb. Where's the lamb? And Abraham tells him, God will provide the lamb. There's a name given for God here, this is a, and the name is Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. So he's going to be, Abraham is looking at God in a new light. We've also seen uh, the well at Beer Lahairoi where it, God is called the God who sees. That's what uh, Hagar calls him, the God who sees me. Well, now, and after she nearly loses her only son. Well, now Abram's about to lose his only son, and he sees that it's God will provide. So let's go specifically into how that happens. So Isaac says to Abram, my father, and he says, here I am, my son. By the way, in Sunday school, you get these ideas of, the, like, Isaac's like six. No, he's a, he's a grown man at this point. He's probably pushing 30. Abraham's an old man. So what does that say about Isaac in this whole passage? He believes his dad. He'll do what he says. He could leave at any point, but it never crosses his mind as far as we can tell. So he says, my father. He says, here I am, my son, which... I mean, you can imagine just like the, the tension and the, the weight in these conversations as Abraham's contemplating what he's about to do, and Isaac is picking up on some clues, and he knows something's going on, and he knows there's something that his dad's not telling him. He says, look, I see, I'm in uh, verse 7, Isaac, I'm paraphrasing, Isaac says, I can see the fire and I can see the wood, where's the lamb? Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
God will provide for himself. Now, there's a, it's interesting, that's a very hard, that's a, that little phrase is the difficult translation because the, in the Hebrew, it's, it has God, lamb, provide himself. So some translations say God will provide himself the lamb. And if you fast forward to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's Jesus saying that before he dies. Jesus knows what's going on. He, he knows what, because he, he if, if you read this text carefully, and you see God talking to Abraham, what that means is Jesus was talking Abraham through this sacrifice. That's his voice. He's there. He understands exactly what's happening here, and he understands exactly what is foreshadowing. And Jesus actually tells us that um, Abraham was looking forward to Jesus' day and saw it and rejoiced. And Jesus says that before he dies. So there's something that Abraham's getting and understanding here. He understands that this is a foreshadowing of a future event, and I'll, I'll prove it to you. So they get to the place in verse 9. Abraham builds the altar, lays the wood on the altar, binds Isaac, who again, totally could have left if he had chosen to, lays him on the altar. There's no struggle. So Isaac is the willing, submissive sacrifice. Abraham reach out, reaches out his hand, takes the knife. Then the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus, calls to him and says, Abraham, says, don't lay your hand on the boy. You've not withheld him from me. Abraham lifts up his eyes and looks, and behind him is a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So you've got the substitute ram over here with thorns and thicket on his head. And then Abraham names this place, and he names it in the future tense, and he says, on the mountain of the Lord, on this mountain, it will be provided. So he knows, he knows what's happening. He knows what it's symbolizing because he, he names it prophetically in the future tense that God will provide the lamb for himself on this mountain someday. And the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time from heaven. By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And then this, this blessing is really important. Let's take a close look at it. I will surely multiply your offspring. So he's talking in the plural there. As the stars of heaven and as the sand. So he, he lists two categories of offspring. You're, you have, you're going to have offspring like the stars of heaven and you're going to have offspring like the sand. And that, I, I believe that what's happening there is he's indicating that this family is going to be an integrated family that it's going to come from two sources, that the offspring attributed to Abraham will be multiplied linearly through his heritage, but his offspring are also going to be counted to him from a wider place than that, and that's, that's us. And your offspring, then he switches to the singular, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So he's, now he's talking about one offspring. Your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. 
and in your offspring, in that offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he's telling them something's going to happen with your family that's going to affect every nation because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returns to his young men, and they leave. But notice it doesn't say anything about Isaac. Isaac's there, but his name doesn't come up again until you get all the way to the end of chapter 24 in verse 62, chapter 24. That's the next time it says Isaac had returned from this place, and he went out, lifts up his eyes, and sees his bride coming, and she sees him. There's... Oh, there's so much. Um, so you see what's happening with the typology here in Genesis. None of this is in here by accident, and, it, and it's going in order on purpose. What, what, what God is showing here is he's foreshadowing who he is, what he's doing, how he's going to reconcile the earth to himself, and what it's going to take. I kept asking myself and running this around in my head, Let's have the worship team come on up. What kind of God asks somebody to sacrifice his son for sin? And the only answer is the kind of God who would sacrifice his son for sin. And what kind of God, rather than demanding the worship through sacrifice in repayment of a debt, is willing of all these other ancient gods, there's only one, and it's unheard of, that he would say, no, I'm going to do it. I'll take it for you. That's, it's so profound that that's what God did for us through Christ. Because we're born with that indebtedness. We're facing these deific terms that are so harsh and demanding. And we know, again, through all human history, that it's only paid by blood. It's always blood. There's no other way. It's always blood. And you have all these nations around Abraham desperately trying to please their gods through blood. And so then God says to Abraham, I'm your God, and I want this is what I'm asking of you. And Abraham obeys, and then God steps in and says, it's going to be my blood, actually. It's, that's never happened in human history. Not like that, that God would say, my family is so important to me, this, these people are so important to me, this offspring is so important to me, that I'll take the sacrifice. And sacrifice, remember, is an act of worship. So what God, this God is different. Our God is different from the other gods. Because what our God really wants is belief and obedience. Because we, there's no amount of sacrifice that, that we in and of ourselves can provide. There's no amount of blood that really satisfies the debt. We can't do it. Even if we were 100% obedient and submissive. There's no amount. But this one God, separate from all the other gods, this God says, I'll be the blood. Jesus is um, worshipped in heaven. If you turn to Revelation, 
should be right around chapter 5. Jesus is worshipped and acknowledged in heaven as the lamb who was slain. He's the lamb. Now, and some people have pointed out, well, it's, it's, there's, why is there, what, what is the difference between lamb and ram? Because you have ram, the ram is what was actually caught there. A ram is just a, a grown-up, more mature lamb. That's all it is. It's a male that uh, hasn't been fixed. And the ram's horns in Scripture are always a symbol of power. Ram's horns are, are powerful. So when you look at Revelation chapter 5, in verse 6, it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. That's a whole other conversation. And went out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. And they sang a song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the end of the story. It's, it's almost, I mean, it just changes all the terms, doesn't it? It changes, so I'm, you know, I'm about to say, like, well, let's worship together. I just said worship sacrifice. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even know what these things mean anymore because I've underestimated them. And it's not until we really get into this, the depth of the, the text of Scripture and look at how incredibly profound and simple it is that we even can understand what, what worship could even be. It's, it's not just a song. It's... It's more than that. It's sacrifice and obedience, but not sacrifice because there's a debt we can't pay. It's worship of acknowledgement that we serve the only God who took care of the debt and just asks for belief from us. And that's what Abraham got right. He got the belief right. Just an unquestioning, simple, God said it. I don't understand how this is going to work, but I believe he's got it. And he was right. And Jesus points to Abraham, to, when he points back to himself, he puts himself in the context of Abraham. He says, Abraham said this, guys, when he's talking to the, uh, the Pharisees and the leaders. He says, your father, he doesn't, he doesn't say my father, he says, your father, Abraham, said this. He wanted to see me, and here I am. And he did see me, and he was glad. What do you think Jesus was thinking when he said, and he did see me? I think he was thinking of that, what we just read, that lamb, that substitution lamb. And, of course, Abraham would have been glad. Let's stop there. I'll come back and lead us in communion after um, our, first, uh, our first song here. If you, can, if you can't tell, it's, these passages, so, there's so much in them that I, 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 I struggle to figure out like, how, how much to say where to go. And so today I just wanted to, to take this, this sermon and, and come up here and be like, look at this. That, look at this God we have. Look at, look at what kind of God he is. And look at what he's been doing and how consistent it is. And look, look at how it goes all the way back to the very beginning, which is before Genesis. 
And look at how this is what he's been doing. And look at how he's demonstrating his, his, his being unlike any other God. And look at how he wants a family. Not because he's lonely, but because he loves to share himself accurately. And look at how unselfish he is. And look at how he would go to such absurd, absurd lengths to make sure we can be in his family. And look at how in, in heaven, at the end, you're going to have all these extremely powerful beings pointing to this thing about God and worshiping him for this specifically, saying, you were slain to redeem a people. We get it. So he's, the demonstration that he's making is, is, it's not just a paying off of debt. It's a, a cosmic statement that rocks heaven and eternity because it shows what kind of God he is. And the one response that all of heaven has when they see it and get it is worship. Worship. And belief and acknowledgement. And that's, that's what we can do. That's what we do. I mean, that's corporately, that's what we do. That's why we're here. That's why we're here this Sunday morning together is to, to practice that because it's, it's the point. It's, it's eternity. And there's a lot going on there. There's a lot more to it. It's not, it's not monotonous, but it's profound and it's at the central core of everything is look at this God. Look at what kind of God he is. Let's sing this first song together, then we'll come back and I'll lead us in communion. I, I want us to, um, I want us to, to consider Christ, this Jesus we're singing about, uh, trusting, and we do, but I want us to consider how, how, how big he is. Consider how his, um, his sacrifice for us was so complete and so perfect, and He doesn't even require us to really understand it. He just requires that we believe it, even a little, just a little. And He says things like, I was looking at some of the, the stuff He says about Himself. If you go to John, you don't have to, but I'll, I'll go. Go to John, and you look at how outrageous Jesus is. He, he says stuff that's so profound and so impossible that there's multiple occasions where they try to immediately kill him because it doesn't compute. It's so upsetting. So Jesus, um, he, was, he, he goes to parties and makes them really interesting. And in John 7, 37, Jesus stands up at this feast on the greatest day, he stands up and starts yelling. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
but he's speaking in the, in the, in the present tense. He's explaining something, and, if, and we could go to Isaiah where it says, you'll draw water from wells of salvation. And all this stuff was you know, written before Christ, but by Christ, because he looks at this whole human existence situation as a complete thing. So when he's in it, he's walking through something that's already done. So he can say things in the, in the present tense that haven't yet happened because he knows they're true. And he knows they're true because he's God, and God's name is I am. And Jesus is walking out this, this expression of this certainty of existence and he includes us in that. And it's so foreign to us because we, we think about this kind of linear experience of humanity and we think of everything as, you know, it can go this way or it can go that way. But for Christ, he already knows you. He knows you more than you know you. He knows who you really, really are. He knows your name that you don't even know yet. The Bible tells us that. He knows who you are lifted up and redeemed and glorified alongside him as his family. That's how he sees you. And it's present tense true. Even though here, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? And he says, and he does things to, to, to show us that he gets that. Like he heals a, a guy who's blind, but he heals him first so that the guy can only kind of see. And then he asks him about it. And then he heals him the rest of the way. And so that, that's, that's where we are. We're, we're in this, this place where we kind of see. We, we kind of get it. But it's a really weird and difficult tension to live in that place where we, we, we know. But the only way we can really know is to say, at the end of the day, do I trust Jesus or not? Because there's no other answers. Nothing else works. Nothing else explains what we need. Nothing else reaches that inherent indebtedness that we feel in our heart. Nothing else is the, can possibly be the, the water that we have to have. There's no other family that makes sense. So, when we're together in church, our job for, for each other is to encourage and remind each other in that. And the, the, the moral of it is to, at the end of every conversation, the way we edify each other, and I'm not, I don't mean ritualistically, but the way we edify each other is to say, you can trust Jesus. And keep telling each other, you can trust Jesus, even when it's really hard even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems impossible, even when, there's, when, there, when it seems like walking with him is outrageous and might get you killed, you can still trust him because he knows. And when we sing, you know, the, these songs and we, it's, it's, it's to acknowledge him and to bring us back to that, that spot that I can trust him. And there's just no other, there's no other answer. There's, there, we don't have anything else. I don't have anything else. This book doesn't have any other answer besides Christ. 
We're going to have a, a baptism service sometime soon. If you've never been baptized, get baptized. Because that's a, it's a, something that Jesus asked us to do. He said, if you believe me, get baptized. It doesn't save you, but it's a, a, an opportunity to make that statement that I trust him. He also says to take communion. He says, if you believe me, take communion. He says, it's my flesh, it's my blood. You need it. So that's what we'll, we'll do next. But I want you to remember, when you take the communion, remember that Jesus was there talking to Abraham when Abraham had his son on an altar. And Jesus knew exactly what this was going to require of him. Jesus knew that he was the one who was going to, at some point in the future, but to him it was already a certainty, he was going to carry wood up that same mountain and nobody would stop the knife from him. And that he would be submitting to his father in the process and he'd have thorns on his brow and he would bleed because there was no other way to pay the debt. Then there was no substitute for him. That's communion. That's how we get close to him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, have mercy on us, Lord. Help us with our unbelief. Help us to look to you, to see you. Help us to know your flesh and blood. Thank you that we can be in your family, Lord. Amen.